All right, grab your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter one. Let me read to you guys our passage for today. I think we're gonna get through three verses at least today. So that'll be fun. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Jesus. We thank you that you have now come and you have spoken the last word in these last days. And as we come and have a, a head-on encounter with this passage of Scripture and this God who induced this passage of Scripture into our lives, I pray that it would not leave us the same, that we would be blown away by the sheer majesty and radiance and power that you have and is bound up in you. And Jesus, I know that today many people came in from many different walks of life and many different encounters that they've experienced this week. And Jesus, I pray that we cannot uh, just ignore those things today, that we cannot just hope those just go away magically because somehow we were in church. I pray, Jesus, that you would meet my friends, my family members here with me exactly where we are. Your gospel does not require that we get ourselves together before we surrender to it. Your gospel does not require that we fix ourselves up before it's allowed to change us and make us more into your son. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would meet us exactly where you are. But please do not leave one of us the same way we walked in. In your name, amen. All right. So have you guys ever had this encounter in your faith where like maybe... You were new to Christianity, you came in and you started figuring some stuff out and you, you started doing some things. Maybe somebody invited you to church and your eyes were just open to Christ. Maybe for some of you, this may be harder to go back to because it was maybe when you were a kid or maybe it was when you, you know, first got married and, you're, you and your husband or your wife and you were like, hey, we got to start going to church and you committed to going to church. And it was this thing where for a little while, you maybe had a moment in time where you were like, I was on fire for Christ. Anybody ever had one of those moments where you look back and you go like, hey, that was a season of my life or a moment of my life or like five minutes of my life where I was on fire for Christ. You would be raise your, willing to raise your hand and go like, I've had that moment. And most of the time, those are connected to us taking spiritual steps. It was like, okay, I, I, I surrendered my life to Christ. I surrendered to baptism. I, I started becoming part of a church. I, I started doing these things. I started serving at this place. Or some of you, and this is a lot of stories for a lot of people, is I went on a mission trip, and my eyes were just opened how amazingly blessed I was. And God radically began to transform my life in the midst of that. And you have those moments where, where you've watched it happen in your life and in other lives where they're just on fire. But how many would you would be willing to bed and willing to even confess that sometimes that fire that you originally had, something happened and it started to die out. You, you left an old friend group. You burned all your you know, non-Christian CDs at youth group that one night. You did all of those things. But usually what happens, and I've walked with enough people in faith and experienced it even in my own self enough to know that something usually happens as you journey into that. I'm on fire mode of faith. Something usually happens, and it causes you to hit this crossroads where you go, I've been saying no to a whole lot of stuff. I've been saying yes to a whole lot of stuff I never thought I would say yes to. I, I went on a mission trip. I served in kids' ministry. I, I, I'm fighting my flesh. And what happens many times is something bad happens in life. And many people have experienced this. You have this crisis of faith moment where you go, is this worth it? Like if this God supposedly loves me this much and I'm, I'm working and I'm doing all these things to try to be a good person and try to be a good Christian and then this still happens to me, is this worth it? And you've experienced some of those crises of faith moments where there was a divorce, infertility, cancer, somebody betraying your trust, a pastor or a preacher letting you down and you had a crisis of faith. Now, the amazing news is Many of you in this room, and I, I want you to think about your own story. Many of you are in this room, not 
in direct correlation to your on fire season. Most of you are here because your story went, I was on fire. And then I wandered back to the far country and I got into my old far country stomping grounds and I tasted a little bit of the far country's food. And then I remembered how bitter of an aftertaste it left and I rebounded and I went back to Jesus and I found myself here. Most, most of you in this room are in this room because you passed the test of faith. It was about to burn out and somehow, someway, by the grace of God, by you realizing and holding on to this faith that you confess, whether it was as a child, whether it was a young adult, or whether it was a grown adult, you didn't let go and Christ didn't let go of you and you passed that crisis of faith and you're in this room. Because you held on, you were on fire, you walked away, and you found yourself coming back. And that's an amazing thing. That is worth celebrating, that that we have a God who is there for us when we spiritually, and sometimes even physically, relapse in our faith. Now, many of you are in that room Because after a relapse in faith, you came back and picked it back up. You picked your cross back up and you're continuing to follow Christ. But in this moment, in this room, I bet names, faces, people, and story come to mind of people that you remember who used to be on fire for Christ. And now that fire has all but burned out. They're back doing the same things they used to. They're back trying to do it all on their own. They're in the old relationships or the old habits that you celebrated and praise God that they were finally free of. And now you know they're back. And it breaks your heart. Because the salvation that you believe that they received is something that it seems like they're rejecting in that moment. And see, if you've experienced that and you felt that, then you are going to love the book of Hebrews because it's, it's that very crisis of faith that inspired the author of Hebrews to write this message. Most scholars even think that he's writing this as a sermon to people who are at a crossroads of faith going, do we continue forward with this Christianity thing? Should we turn back and just go back to our old habits and our old culture in this old way? Is this really going to be worth it? It's, getting, it's starting to get hard to be a Christian. Is it worth it? So it's incredibly pertinent to us because, I don't know, maybe you've already hit one of those crossroads where you went, oh man, is it worth it to continue to follow Christ? Is it worth it even when life gets hard as a Christian? If you haven't faced one of those, I can promise you this, you will. You absolutely will. And that's what inspires this author of Hebrews to write. So I want to give you a little bit of a recap, and then we're going to unpack this passage that we walked through. So I want to make sure you understand the context, what's going on here. So if you're taking notes, you can write some of this down, or you can just take a picture of it. So in, in regards to Hebrews, when was this book written? All right. So AD 60 to 70 is, is kind of this window where we know the book of Hebrews was actually written. It's uh, actually not actually addressed to any particular group. And the other thing that we don't really know is who in the world is the author. There's a couple of arguments on who the author is. Uh, some people say it's Paul because it's got a lot of Pauline theology in it. It's kind of written like other epistles that Paul wrote. Some people say it's Barnabas. Barnabas would have been a guy uh, who, who knew and understood a lot of these things. Some people say it's this guy Apollos. You hear Paul reference this guy Apollos going, Apollos, and he, Paul actually says that he is very eloquent in his speech. And that could be uh, one of the reasons that people say, yeah, the Hebrews is Apollos writing because it's got a lot of that beauty in the speech and it's just better written maybe than even some of and longer for sure than some of Paul's letters but at the end of the day we could waste a lot of time arguing about who it is and the truth is we don't know and God left it that way for whatever reason so that we wouldn't argue about it so that we wouldn't uh, make that uh, a, a mountain when it's really just a molehill because really here's what we know and we talked about this last week the true author is not Paul Apollos Luke or anybody else the true author of the book of Hebrews is the word himself Jesus He's the one who speaks this to us. He's the one who gives this to us. The recipients, and again, this is why it's called Hebrews. The Hebrews was another name for the, the, the people who were Jewish. 
people who are Israelites. I don't know why they have so many names, but they do. Um, the Jews, the Hebrews, Israelites, that's the group of people who this is being wrote to, but not any particular group of Jews. It's been written specifically to people who were Jewish, but came to put their faith and trust in Christ. All right, so the people who we're talking about, again, this is a large group of people. Remember, the gospel blows up and it spreads through Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism. And so what's happening is a large amount of people who used to be Jews, who worship the same God that Jesus is coming on behalf of, the same Father, the same Yahweh, Jesus is now saying, I am the complete fulfillment of this God who you've always been serving. And so masses, thousands upon thousands of Jews put their faith in Christ and recognized him as God's son, as the Messiah. But many, many didn't. And the reason that Jesus ends up crucified is because many of those Jewish leaders of that religion believe that he is a false Messiah and we have to kill him. That's the best thing we could do for God is to kill this person who's claiming to be God. And so it's written primarily to Jewish Christians. We would be foolish to think that there weren't some um, Gentiles there, but this primarily to these people. And again, why? why? Why is this book even written in the first place? It's written as an encouragement to them to endure. The author of Hebrews is trying to encourage them, do not let go of the faith that you have. He over and over again, he says, don't neglect the salvation that you have received. Hold fast to it. And the theme, or the point of the whole book, the theme is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. You're going to keep hearing those two words come up over and over again, as hopefully you're starting to even like in your own quiet time, read, begin to read through the book of Hebrews. Over and over again, this author is trying to help these people understand that Christ is fully sufficient to truly be who you need him to be for you. And also, he is supreme this is what we pick up, and this is why, as we journey through the book of Hebrews, and I know, you know some of this is very introductory, and I promise we're going to get into some life application, very practical stuff here in a second. But I need you to understand this context. He's writing this to them to help them understand all of the big questions that they have about faith and all of the heroes that they have in their faith meet their fulfillment in Jesus. And so as we go through Hebrews, one of the things that we're all going to kind of get is an Old Testament survey. We're going to get kind of a summary through the Old Testament because what the author of Hebrews is really trying to do is just take you all the way back to the very beginning and walk you through everybody in the Old Testament and show you how Christ is a truer and greater version of whoever that person is. And that's really where we get to the point. Jesus is greater. To say it in a little bit more fancy way, the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ. So, with all that being said, let's dive in. Hebrews 1, 1 2. We talked about this a little bit, so I can't, I can't, I want to really dive into uh, the, the back half of this and verse 3. And so we can't spend a ton of time here, but the author starts this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This author saying, hey, there was a time when God spoke via represent, representatives, where God chose people, picked people, and they, is what, they are the ones who his message went through. But he says, in these last days, we're going to come back to that, he has spoken to us by his son. It's, it's the author's way of saying, now a time has come where we don't have representatives of God, we have the son. And to have heard from the son is to heard directly from God, directly from the source and the supply of all truth. Now, I want to camp out on this word. Where'd it go? There's two parts. Last days. Last days. We get all fired up. Church people, man, we get all fired up by them last days, right? How many of you ever bought a book that has something to do with the last days? Just admit it. Just admit it. It's okay. No, you're not going to get in the judgment-free zone, okay? We're curious, right? It fascinates us. Last days, you know, prophets and last days theology and what does Russia and Ukraine mean and all these, like we went crazy about the last days. Now, there's a lot of things about the last days that you cannot know. God doesn't want you to know that he's continuing to, to hold on to. The point that I believe the author of Hebrews is at here is saying in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son is to draw our attention to this truth in reality. There is not going to be anybody else who is going to come and add to the revelation that ended with my son. All right? So this is one of the giant points he's trying to make here. And this is huge in regards to world religions. 
So when he says in these last days, what he's not just t- saying there is, hey, you know, in these last few days, like, like way we would say in the last few days, it's been raining. Like we talk about that. And in one sense, that just means that's what's happened recently. That is not what the author of Hebrews is about here. When he says the last days, what he's referring to is there were previous days where God spoke through prophets and he revealed his truth that way. But in these last days, when he says last, he's saying this is the last way he's going to do it. So our, 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 our Mormon friends who say that, that God, again, showed up and spoke to someone and, and there were these golden tablets discovered out in the woods that gives us a new revelation about God. We can go to the book of Hebrews and go, that is a false religion. That is false faith. Our God has finished his speaking in and through the person that is Jesus. The full revelation of who our God is is consumed and ends with Jesus. He is last days spoken with him. The other thing that this means is, In these last days, which means there's a point where these last days, where this is the last day and this is the last day, and you eventually, when you go through the last days, what do you get to? The last day. And what the author is trying to get our eyes to go to there is that when the last day comes, the next thing that comes is judgment. And so it is mission critical that we understand that in the former days, God spoke through prophets, and, and yes, those were great and those were good, but now he has spoken to our son. And it's not that we let go of all the things that the prophet says. It's that we now see everything that the prophet said in the former days in light of what the son has said in these days now. And now we take all of this collection of how God has been speaking to us, and we allow this to be what guides our life because we know we are in the last days, and when the last day happens, after that is the judgment day where we're gonna be judged in accordance with what we did, with what God spoke through the prophets and then primarily through his son. And this is no wonder why as we're in, because he's telling you what days we're in, we're in the last days, and this is no wonder why in our current day, the volume and the dial has been turned up as far as it will go, pegged out on the other side to get us to hear other words that come from the world around us. We've talked about before, when you become a Christian, you have three enemies. You have the world, your flesh, and the devil. And the voice of the devil is what is working in tandem with your flesh to create a world in which you are drowned out from the words of God and all the word of God, and all you hear is the words of the world. And this shows up in a in a way where it's not really combative of against the word of God. It's more so just distractive. If I can get you distracted by all the things of God, I can make sure that you never get the word of God. I can make sure that you never hear and heed and listen and obey to the things that God has actually said and revealed in his son. I'd rather you know all the things that are going on in the world. I would rather you know what new TikTok trends there are out there. I would rather that you know what Kardashians ate for breakfast. I would rather you know all these things. And again, Satan has a great strategy. He knows the things that will catch your eye. He knows the things that you will, like everybody has a McDonald's. All right. Now, some of you, if I told you, like, I ate McDonald's breakfast, you know, Saturday morning, you're like, Ew, gross. You health nut people out there, you're like, gross, McDonald's, how dare you? That's disgusting. But listen, everybody has their McDonald's. Everybody has this thing. Some of your McDonald's are shows like the Kardashians. Some of you show, your, your McDonald's are just the stupid things that you numb and, and, and dull your senses with. Everybody has their thing. And what I believe the author of Hebrews is after here is going, we're in the last days. And so the truth God's not coming. People, what's happening now is there, nobody's sitting around with bated breath, ears like this, going, God, speak to us one more time. We need to hear from you. Satan knows that that's not where people are at. But what he knows is that God has said everything that he needs to say. And so Satan is now, think if you were on his team, what you would do, if God has said everything that he has said, now is my time to say as much as I can, to distract as strong as I can, to just turn up the dial, to put these people who live in the 2020s in the information age. Now, again, I don't care how dumb, how pointless, how useless, or how non-essential that information is. I just want them to have all the information that my broken, fallen, corrupt world can give them So they get all that information and they never get that transformation that my enemy God would want to bring in through their lives. These are the days we live in. So he's telling them, 
This is the last days. And in these last days, what God has done is he's spoken to us by his son. Now, as we get through um, verses 2 and 3, what we're going to discover is the author of Hebrews is trying to help us understand the identity of Christ. And today, we're going to walk through five identifying characteristics that the author of Hebrews tells us about who Jesus is. He starts out. We're going to see the first one here. He says, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. So if you're writing notes, taking stuff down, what this means is Jesus, the way we'll talk about it here, is Jesus is the inheritor. He's the heir. So what this means is Jesus is the one to whom spoke all of things into creation. We're going to do that in a second when we get to the next one. But he is the one who's going to receive all the world back unto himself. When it says he is the heir of all things. You know what it means to receive an inheritance? He says Jesus is going to be the one who receives this inheritance. Now you're going, okay, well, when in the world does that happen? Like, is that something that's already happened now? Or is that something that is going to happen at the end? I would say that is both and. In Christianity, if we're going to walk with Christ, we've got to embrace the already, not yet. You've heard me talk about that before. Is everything that Jesus owns already his? That is true already. Is it fully his? Well, not yet. There's going to come a day where heaven is going to return to earth. I know that's counter to what you guys, a lot of you guys thought. You guys thought we were all just going to be raptured up and everything else. But Jesus tells us very clearly in the world that he's going to return and he's going to restore this broken world. He, he says, I'm coming to make all things new, not all new things. And so as he comes, he's going to redeem and restore the world. And we're going to experience him as the true divine inheritance that he truly has. Now, this is what's wild about this. If he says that everything in the world is Jesus's inheritance, that he is the inheritor of all those things, track with me here. That means, this is mind-blowing. I was sitting in my office this week, and, and, and sometimes I, I read through stuff, and I'm studying this, and I just have those moments where I kind of close whatever book I'm reading, and I'm going, oh, my God, like in a good way, oh, my God. And when I stumbled upon this as I was reading one of my commentaries, this, is, this was the moment I had. Think about this. God... Jesus, in tandem, create the entire universe, right? And all of those things, for the most part, they do exactly what God wants them to do. And, and, and we've even now like studied like the, our universe is, is continuing to expand, that there's galaxies upon galaxies, there's mountains, there's rivers, and all of these things at the consummation, at the end times, at the, when the last days meet the last day, Jesus is going to inherit all of those things unto himself. That means all of the galaxies and the galaxies and the galaxies and all those things out there, all the solar systems are Jesus' inheritance. Every giant mountain, every crystal clear blue alpine lake, all the puppies you could ever pet in a day. Jesus has all of those things and they're all his inheritance. And you know what he had to do to get all of those things? All of those things, Jesus had to do nothing. They were already his. We're getting into a second. The next, the next one we're going to talk about of who Jesus is, and the author goes there, and if you've got your Bible, you can already read it. He's the one who created it all. He didn't have to do nothing to get them because they were his from the beginning. But listen, this is what's mind-blowing. There's only one piece of Jesus' inheritance that he had to do something for. And it's me and it's you. Now, <laughs> It still gives me chills to think about this. The one who has the solar system in, his, in the will. In the will, the solar system goes to him. In the will, the pinnacle of Everest goes to him. In the will, all the galaxies that exist out there go to him. All the beauty of creation goes to him. And in the midst of all of that, he looks at broken, fallen, sin-scarred people like me and you. And he goes... Out of all that, I could really care less. You are the treasure of my inheritance. So much so, again, in order for somebody to receive an inheritance, what has to happen? Somebody has to die. I'm willing to die to receive you as the treasure of my inheritance. So he is, he is the inheritor. And we can go, oh, great, God's in uh, Jesus is going to get the entire world. But here's what you need to understand. The thing that he treasures most about what he's going to inherit, again, this should blow your mind, is you and me. 
the church. Now, to make matters better, the author of Hebrews taps into this point a little bit later on, but we remember when Paul talked about this in regards to inheritance, he said that Jesus was risen up and Jesus is now seated where? The right hand of God. All power and authority is given to him. He's seated at the right hand of God. And then a couple of verses later in the book of Hebrews, maybe you guys remember, I'm going to jog your memory a little bit here. Where does he say that those in Christ are also seated? With him. Okay? Now, what this is alluding to and what this is pointing to is that not only is all of the things that Jesus will get part of his inheritance, but it also means that you are a co-heir. The Bible says that over and over again. You're a co-heir with Christ. That means that this worldly inheritance, this redeemed worldly inheritance, not the jacked up weird one that we're kind of walking through right now, but the world as as best as it can get is also something that you're in on because the blood of the Son is in you if you are in Christ. That's awesome. And so as we go through these five things, what what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my best to try to show you what in the world this means and then what we do with what this means. And so now to ask the question, okay, well, if that's who Jesus is, what do I do with what this means? I repent, and then I rejoice. Again, I put those in that order on purpose. There is no rejoicing unless there's first repentance. Because we have to ask ourselves, am I going to be on the right side of this inheritance or the wrong side? The Bible makes it very clear that there are going to be some who do not put their faith and trust in Christ. He says, broad is the gate that leads to destruction, that leads to hell, that leads to separation from Christ. And narrow is the way that leads to truth. And narrow is the gate that gets through. And only a few will be able to find that. And so, again, track with me. I don't know if you know the difference between small little trails in the woods and interstates. But if I know interstates, like I think I know interstates because I live in Henry County, there's a lot more people on interstates than there are on narrow little paths in the woods. And again, I'm not quoting even from a different author of Scripture. These are Jesus' words. When he essentially says there are going to be less people who find their way into this inheritance, and there are going to be more people who choose a different path. And so we've got to repent of going, oh, I'm going to work for my things on earth. I'm going to do all my things down here, and I'm going to work up something great, and I'm going to have good things coming to me because of how good I was here. No, 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 no. I repent of my sin. I repent of my ways and my attempts to try to save myself. And then I rejoice because I know I am in Christ. He goes on. And he says, the back half of verse 2. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is the second one, if you're taking notes. Through whom he also created the world. So what he's saying here is that Christ, and this again, his identity, Christ is creator. Now, I know this is messing with some of you guys' theology a little bit. You're going like, I thought God did this. Well, it said through the son, he created the world, right? Now, how did God, when he said, oh, I just gave it away, man. (laughs) All right. When God created light, how did he do it? He spoke it, right? We did all those other things. We, you know, he, he did that all with words. And then go to John 1.1, 1, 1. what did the Bible, what does God say Jesus is? He's the word. Okay, so, so to, to try to get your mind around how can it say God created the world and then Christ created the world, well, the way in which God created the word, oh, hold this on, let me, let me slow down so I can say this. I know I talk too fast to be able to get this right. The way in which God created the world was through the word. And the word is his son. It's Jesus. And so what that means is the God as creator and the word as the element through which the creation happens are inextricably connected. They go together. And so he is the creator of the world. This is awesome. And in the book of Colossians, it, it, it helps us, or John, uh, we'll get to Colossians in a second. Uh, John 1, 3, it shows us, this is in all things were made through him. It's talking about Jesus. All things were made through him and without him was not anything Made that was made. Here's the verse in Colossians. Colossians 1.16. I love this. For by him, it's talking about Jesus here. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Were there thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities? All things were created through him. I love this part. For him. You were not created for yourself. Your spouse was not created for you. You were not created for your spouse. You were not created for your grandkids. 
despite how awesome they are. You were not created for your kids, and those kids, this is what you need to know too, they were not created for you either. All things were created, were created primarily for him. So what do we do with what this means? If he is the preeminent creator, the one through which all creation happened, what do we do with what this means? We let him create something new in you. Again, his creative power did not run out when he just created the world and spoke it all into existence, and it's just here. What I love about the fact that our God, Jesus, is a creator is that he is still in the process of creating. And what he's creating is something new in me and you. For some of you, that new thing is salvation. For some of you, that new thing is a, not a new version of you, but the true version of you, the version of you that is Christ living most through you. He did not go to the cross and go through what he went through, though you could become a better version of yourself. He, he went through what he went through so he could make you new. He can make you true. That's why I love what the book of 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, not a better version. Best version of Trent Shoemaker is going to be crispy kindling in hell. I don't need a new, I don't need a better version of me. I need a new version of me that is fireproof because of Jesus. He's a new creation and the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So he is the inheritor. He's the creator and then this is probably my favorite one out of all of these. Gets us into verse three. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And just, don't you just get like, what in the world does that mean? I love it, but I don't know. It's like that scene from uh, that, that movie. I, I don't know what this means, but I love it. The radiance of the glory of God. If you're writing notes, keeping track with us. So he's the radiator, and obviously not as in the thing that's in your vehicle. Um, he's the radiator of the glory of God. I just had to keep with the ORs at the end. Now, this word radiance, it is one of my favorite things to find in Scripture. I love to find a word in Scripture where the Greek word for what it is is only used one time. And this word radiance is only used one time. Uh, it's this word apogasma. Can we say that together? Apogasma. Sounds like something you have right before the ambulance shows up. Um, <laughs> apogasma. And, and what it means is a light flashing forward from a source. All right, so track with me here. We've already kind of tiptoed around this a little bit. Think about, you ever been in a house and your house is kind of dusty in the summertime and you're by the window and you can see a beam of light coming through the window. And the only reason you really see the beam of light coming through the window is because you see those little dust particles and you're like, man, our house needs to be dusted. And then you just go outside and play and you don't dust. That's just me. Um, <laughs> but you see that coming through. Now, what you need to understand, and this is what the author is about when he says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Some of your Bible translations may say he's the reflection of the glory of God. That's, that's nonsense. That means that the the true source of the light is out here and it's shooting here, bouncing off of him and shooting back somewhere else. That's not what's going on. When it says he's the apogasma, he's the radiance of the glory of God. It's the way that the sun's rays are inextricably connected to the sun. So when you, you walk out at the beach in the middle of summer and you stand there and you feel that warmth on you, those rays that are hitting you came from where? The source. The rays, the radiance, is the light that is bursting forth from that that comes to you. Now again, if you take away the sun at the beach, you don't get the rays. If you take away the rays that are coming from the sun, you don't feel its radiance. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do here to us is showing, hey, I need you to understand the Trinity in this way of going, yes, the son and the father are different but the Son exists in perfect union with the Father to help you experience the Father. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the full light and source, the true perfect light that is bursting forth from this source. A couple of passages that may help us be able to get our minds around this. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Says, and again, look who's writing here. This is someone who slept in a bed next to Jesus. This is someone who, who saw Jesus pull out napkins and, and wipe them from his face. This is one who saw Jesus with bed head as he walked on planet earth as one of his disciples. This is the apostle John, the one who said, I am the one whom Jesus loves. This is him writing these words. And this is what he says about God and who Jesus is. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him, it's no darkness at all. 
And if we say that we have fellowship with him, and again, this, remember who's writing. This is a guy who totally had fellowship with him. This is a guy who experienced day in, day out walks with Jesus. If you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness, you're a liar. We lie and we do not practice the truth. Another passage I love is in the book of Ephesians. Remember we hit this. He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, I love this passage. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. Remember when we started this message and I talked about you had that moment where you were on fire for Christ, where you were on fire for Christ because there was the the magnifying glass effect happened to you. The radiance of the glory of God happened and and somehow that light that was shining on you sparked a fire inside of you and you were awoken. The light of Christ as it showed on you. And that's how it works. Starts out by the light of Christ shining on you, but then friends, it's the light of Christ that shines not just on you, but in you. And so in regards to what do we do with this truth and this reality that Jesus is the great radiator of the glory of God, we let his light shine in you, and you light his, let his light shine through you. Let his light shine in you, and you've got to let it shine through you. Now, <clears throat> I don't know how you guys have uh, your quiet times with God, which is a really dumb word. It sounds like you're in trouble with God. Like I have my quiet time today. It's like, it's like I was punished. But I don't know how you have your own Bible reading devotion time, but um, all last year as we were going through the book of Ephesians, in my personal time with God, I was going through the book of Hebrews. And I hit this word radiance, and I, I couldn't get out of like that word, an apogasma. And I started thinking about like our English words, radiance. And I started even thinking about radiation therapy. And I, I, I have known people who've gone through radiation. Anybody in this room had radiation, cancer, therapy? A lot of people. Wow, okay. So... Maybe your Bible study in the morning doesn't lead you to WebMD and the Mayo Clinic, but mine did this particular one. It doesn't always go there. Sometimes it goes to some really wild places. But this morning, I started studying radiation therapy because, uh, again, our God who said he's the radiance of the glory of God, I believe fully he's the one who created radiation therapy. So I'm like studying this stuff and learning all these things about radiation therapy. And what I came to find out is there's actually two types of radiation therapy. It's wild. Check this out. There's two types of radiation therapy. There's one called external beam radiation therapy. Now, again, you can probably imagine what external beam radiation therapy is. This is where you kind of lay on one of those contraptions and the giant, you know, brontosaurus shoots laser beams into your body and it heals your cancer. Like, or really, it kills the cancer cells. But many of you who've probably been through radiation treatment, external beam treatment, what you've noticed when you've gone through that is it doesn't just kill the cancer cells. What other cells does it also kill? It kills the good cells too, Right. And so, I don't know how long ago, I can't remember those things, that was too much that day. Um, There's external beam radiation, and then there's this stuff called, let me look at it, I'm going to get it wrong, brachytherapy. Now, brachytherapy is completely different than external beam radiation. Anybody had brachytherapy? Okay, cool, that's awesome. Okay, so there's brachytherapy, and it's different than... External beam radiation. External beam radiation works from the outside in. Brachytherapy is radiation that works from the inside out. And um, unfortunately, the the diagram that they showed me was brachytherapy working on a prostate. And so that was way too much at 6.30 in the morning for me. And I was just like, okay, I get it. This is awesome. This is amazing. And I I found myself like Googling, like, how do I make sure that never happens to me? Prostate health for 35-year-old men. Like, it was just, it was this wild rabbit hole in the morning. I just found myself praying over my prostate that morning just (laughs) because brachytherapy looked terrible. Um, But what's wild is what they do is they actually take the radiation and they insert it into the body and it goes directly to where it needs to. And what it does is it works from the inside out. And what I'm trying to tell you guys is from the whole Old Testament, the author of Hebrews, I don't know if he intended us to get this point from it, but I'm going to give it to you today. The whole Old Testament, the way God worked with people was external beam therapy. The Holy Spirit would come and it would be on a prophet. It would be on Moses. It would be on some of these guys. It would be on a Jonah. The Holy Spirit would get on those guys and he would come and then the Holy Spirit would rest and work on people. But in the person of Jesus, it's no longer external beam radiation therapy. He says, I'm trying to kill away your flesh. And I know, I know because prophet after prophet after person after person, they could never kill your flesh. You'd go to the temple, we'd kill the lamb and you'd go back home and you start sinning on the way home. And so I'm sending my son to be brachytherapy radiation treatment to you so that he can work and kill off all the flesh, not from outside flesh inside, but from inside flesh outside. And what's crazy about this is that's the only way it really works. That's the only way the the bad stuff inside of us ever gets killed. 
And so when I say, let the light of Christ shine in you and through you, I mean that. He's radiating the glory of God inside of you. So what that means is the radiance of the glory of God, friend, is not just supposed to be just, you're not supposed to have one of those giant lead things that you put on when you have an um, x-ray and hope nobody gets this good light I got inside of me. Jesus in Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, verse 15 to 16, he says, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. He says, therefore, let the light of Christ shine through you. And it's his way of saying like, I am inside my, my radiance of the glory of God. Anybody who's in Christ, the radiance of the glory of God is in you. It's all up in you. That's wild. And he says, don't you dare put on one of those giant lead vests and hide the radiance of the glory of God from inside you. So <laughs> this is cool to think about. You are radioactive, my friend. If you are in Christ, the power to kill the cancerous flesh and other people is not you, but it is Christ in you. Through the way you love them, through the way you care for them, through the way that you share with them, through the way that you forgive them, that is the radiance of the glory of God shining forth through your light. So hopefully it can be um, external beam radiation therapy on them that eventually becomes brachytherapy to them. Wow. Next way we see is the back half of verse three. He says, the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, key words there is exact imprint. He's exactly what the father looks like. He's exactly the father. Now, in regards to sons, this is where we get a little bit different than Jesus, okay? So here are my two sons, all right? Now, there's no denying that, that they're mine. This is Titus, my oldest, and this is Ezra, my youngest. Now, uh, raise your hand if you think Titus looks more like me than Ezra does. Which one do you think looks more like me? Titus? Titus, team Titus? Okay. Some of you. Which one do you think Ezra looks more like me? All right. Less of you. All right. I would agree. Ezra looks like his mom. He's way more handsome. Um, both of them really don't look like Let's be honest. Both of them got her good looks, and, and they don't look like me. But as close as they may be to me, or even as close as they may be to Jessica, these sons of mine are not the exact imprint of the father. They're their own. But what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand here is that when you see Jesus, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you are not seeing someone who kind of looks like the father. You know, you got your daddy's nose. Like that's not what you see when you see Jesus. When we look at Jesus and we see him cover to cover through scripture, when we see him especially fully on display through the three years that we have captured his ministry here on earth, what we're seeing there is the representer of God. We are seeing truthfully and fully, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is why I love that there's this, there's this fun interaction between Jesus and one of his apostles named Philip. And Philip has been with Jesus for a really long time, and he still just doesn't get really who Jesus is. And you can kind of hear the frustration in Jesus' voice when he says this in John 14. You can tell us kind of towards the end. It's a, it's a 14. It's getting towards the end of the book. People should kind of know who he is. So um, Jesus, this is coming after uh, John asked him this question. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long <laughs> and you still don't know me, Philip? Now, I love these words. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the representer of God. I am the exact imprint of God. I am God that makes footprints on earth. And they are the exact size and shape that God was. I am the God who speaks in a way that human ears can hear every time. And the words I say are the exact things that that father would say. And so my friends, I, I don't know what you're reading out there, but if you want to know what God is like, be in the gospels. Men of God in this room, I told you guys, if you were there uh, last Tuesday, that is what we're doing. This whole semester, we're going to spend men, we're going to spend the entire semester looking at who Jesus was. He was the exact imprint of God. We're going to study that and learn that so that we can be hopefully exact imprints of God to our families, exact imprints of God who the radiance of his glory shines through everywhere that we go. last thing we see is back half of verse three. Oh, this is what we do with that truth. Trust his authenticity and be authentic. Okay. So if when, to see Jesus is to see God, then I've got to trust that this is authentically who God is. 
this is really who he is. And not just Jesus who says, don't look at porn. Not just Jesus who says, give some of your money away. Not just Jesus who says, don't get angry. And, you know, if, or if you even had an angry thought, you just killed him. Not Jesus who, who did all these things, these moral things that I got to live up to. Like, yes, that's part of it. But trust is authenticity. What is God like? God is like Jesus on a cross dying for you. That's what God is like. I don't know what else you're putting your trust in, what other relationships you think are most important to you. But when you see Jesus, you see authentically who God is. And I know you probably got a lot of questions about God. Why would he let things like this happen? Why would he do this? Why would he give me this affliction? The answers to life's biggest questions are bound up in Christ. He's authentically who God is. Now, in regards to that, if that Christ lives in you, then be trustworthy. Be authentic. Be real. You don't have to, like, if that God knows you for all of who you are, why, why, why keep pretending to be somebody you're not? Just be authentic. And know that it is only in your authenticity that people have the best chance of seeing Jesus. You know, this is what's crazy is we hide who we really are because we don't want people to judge us. But when we do that, we're also hiding Jesus, the one who ultimately is their judge and your judge, and knows when you don't say the things that you should, knows when you say way more than you should. And so I gotta trust that he's authentically God. He's calling me to be authentic as well. Last thing we see here. It says he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of nature. Fifthly, it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, the word here, remember when we talked about uh, in John 1, 1. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And I told you, what Greek word was that? Come on, somebody. Logos, right. Different translation of the word word here. This is not word as in logos. This is word Greek translation. Rima, rima. The difference between logos and rima is logos was the written word of God. Rima was the spoken word of God. Which, again, to go back to where we've already been, he upholds the universe by the spoken word of his power. The same God who spoke the word into existence is the same God who is now speaking it to be upheld at this very moment. Which, again, if you're writing stuff down, is truth, proof positive, that he is the sustainer of the universe. He's sustaining all of this. Now, what we can rest in is... He's sustaining, he's upholding the whole entire world. And what that should cause us to take a deep breath, deep breath in and deep breath out on is that means, friend, you don't have to. Most people who experience depression, most people who experience anxiety, you'll hear a recurring theme in the words that they, they say to describe how they feel. And it's the word Wait. I feel like there's a weight on my shoulder. I feel like there's a weight on my chest. The reason I had the panic attack was because I was trying to catch my breath because I felt like there was just a weight on my chest that was pushing down and I couldn't breathe. Our God says words like these. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He's the one who upholds it. He's the one who sustains it. And so if, if he is the one who upholds the universe, upholds the whole entire universe by his words, and again, that's wild to think about. He's not doing it with his power. He says he's doing it with his spoken word. Then our call is to surrender to his sustaining words. Like if that's who he is, what I do with what that is, is I have to surrender to his sustaining words. I have to surrender to this truths that are found in his word to go, okay, this is how I actually have the basic needs of my life met. Jesus, I love this, this story where he, he goes and he meets the Samaritan woman at the well and he tells the guys to go grab some lunch for him and he goes up and finds a well and he's hanging out by the well. He, he radically transforms and changes this, this woman's life. She goes and starts spreading the gospel to all the people around. I just met the one who told me everything about myself. And the disciples show up and they're like, hey man, what's going on? We brought you some food. And then Jesus says this wild thing. He goes, this, don't you know that man does not live on bread alone but the very word of God. He's saying, if you want your universe to, your universe, your life, the things that you experience, your little orbit, you want that to be sustained? 
the one who's holding up not just your universe, but the entire universe, does it by his spoken word. And here, friend, you have written down, recorded in your car, on your phone, anywhere you want to go. And it is completely 100% still legal at this point in time. You have the spoken word of Christ written down and recorded. And I don't mean to be so basic and so simplistic, but if your world is falling apart right now, there may be a direct connection between the amount of time you spend and the word. He says, my word is what upholds the universe. And if it feels like yours is crashing down, maybe there's a connection. And so this is who Jesus is. And this is who the author of Hebrews is gonna continue through the rest of these 13 chapters to expand and show us about who we are in light of who he is. And as we get ready to to wrap up our time today, I pray that you continue to know that, that he is the great inheritor and you are bought and brought in to that inheritance, that he is the creator and he wants to create something new in you, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and he wants to do brachytherapy through your life, that he is the great representer He's the exact imprint of Christ and he wants you to represent him to the world looking on and that he is the sustainer of your life. And as we receive communion, I want you to know that this is part of why I believe he identified himself as the radiance of the glory of God and then gave us a sacrament like communion. Communion communion week in and week out is your weekly radiation brachytherapy. It's you putting the supernatural inside of your life so that it can begin to do the transformative work to kill your flesh and allow the ones whose flesh was broken and poured out for you to transform you from the inside out. That is the power in the communion that we're getting ready to receive together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these holy moments around your word. Thank you for who you are, your your, your true identity, Jesus. And help us not to miss it. I know there's so many things. Jesus, Jesus, even if we walk away here with one aspect of who you are, clinging to it with dear life this week, I pray that our lives will be transformed and changed. Jesus, we've seen who you are. Now I pray that you give us the strength, the courage, the tenacity, and the discipline to be disciples who don't just see who you are, but follow you with our whole lives. As we partake of the body and the blood, I pray that it transforms us to the inside out. We thank you that that's the type of God you are. Not an external, get your behavior right God, but one who knows we could have never gotten it right. He says, I'm gonna come inside of you. I'm gonna put my spirit inside of your life so that you can live the true and right way. In your name.